District of Conservation is sponsored by the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening to the program. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. It's only mid-January and things are heating up in conservation and energy this year already. There are some very positive developments that I will go over this week, especially alluding to natural asset companies and how the New York Stock Exchange withdrew their rule to basically codify this in SEC, New York Stock Exchange listings. But besides the NAC rule, we're going to talk about the Chevron doctrine being heard. And then today, interestingly enough, this afternoon on Pacific Coast time, Washington State Legislature, I believe it's the Washington Senate, is going to hear a bill to enshrine the right to hunt and fish in their constitution. It is a little out of reach, I think, given the legislature makeup, but if some miracle happens and they pass it, this will be a very good indicator, I think, of things to come and maybe force those other states that have yet to adopt right to hunt and fish amendments to do so. So let's break down these three topics for you all today. A day before the Securities and Exchange Commission was set to finalize their rule to list natural asset companies on the New York Stock Exchange, the New York Stock Exchange sent a notice to the SEC asking them to withdraw the proposal. I accidentally framed this incorrectly, and past guest of the show last week, uh, Treasurer Oaks, reminded me to make sure that specific detail is clarified and corrected because the SEC did not withdraw the rule, but it means that the SEC will no longer pursue this right now. So we have a momentary victory here, but we're going to see this accounting for ecological services and natural assets creep into language relating to budgets, federal spending, stemming from one of President Biden's 2023 executive orders to account for eco-services in cost-benefit analysis as it relates to future budgeting and spending type of efforts. This is not going away, and the UN and some other entities outside of the United States have been pushing this to adopt this new accounting framework that (laughs) deviates from conventional frameworks Um, to basically monetize things that are not monetizable and then simultaneously encroach on your ability to own land and then also to access public land is what this proposed rule does. So I want to briefly talk about why had this proceeded would have been very problematic. And I have a blog post of this at IWF. And first and foremost, the SEC had no authority to create these enterprises because they can't oversee things relating to land management and access because their mission is to protect investors and maintain efficient markets, not manage or conserve private and public lands. And had this gone through, had this concept been legitimized more so, uh, but the New York Stock Exchange and Intrinsic Exchange Group, by which the New York Stock Exchange has a minority interest in, um, they still want to pursue this by different means. They claim this was a market mechanism. It's not market mechanism uh, when you're enrolling federal lands into these type of enterprises. But they would have licensed air land and water rights to foreign adversaries and financial asset managers. We've talked about this. Second, something I overlooked, but this is equally problematic and I see why this connection needs to be made. So you guys know that the Bureau of Land Management is set to finalize their conservation landscape and health rule. And that was actually the topic that landed me and my colleague, Sarah Montalbano, in the 
Wall Street Journal, uh, my first time in the Wall Street Journal. Sarah has previously been there. But I didn't realize at the time until I read the letter from the 25 attorneys general that this was going to be the funding mechanism for conservation leases in that specific rule that is yet to be finalized. And I think we're going to have a follow-up, hopefully, to that. I don't know if it'll be in the Wall Street Journal, but we'll put it out somewhere um, through IWF. But it was going to be the funding mechanism to basically stop productive economic uses on public lands. But they were totally fine with greenlighting, as this conservation lease rule says, that a solar or wind company could bid on this lease because they'll have money to do so. They'll bid other people who are not as wealthy or not as entrenched in terms of their interests. And then they could promise, as as the rule stipulated, they would promise that they would restore low-quality habitat after destroying high quality habitat nearby, which makes no sense. It's this whole mechanism of offsetting and it's so counterintuitive to conservation. The fact that they would be accepted or that type of activity would be accepted. Crazy stuff. Third, NACs would have enrolled federal lands, including national parks, under their hybrid area use case, which I deemed an egregious affront to public lands access and multiple use sustained yield. And the SEC and some of these other agencies don't have the authority to depose of and make rules and regulations respecting territory or property belonging to the United States. So in the Constitution, it says that Congress is the one deputized with this. And those type of overseeing activities or the activities by which you would oversee such a deposing of land would only be done by Department of Interior. So this is the wrong agency to kind of enact Congress's actions with respect to land. So again, falls out of the purview of the SEC. Fourth, as I alluded to with this conservation landscape and health rule, they would have permitted you read through the rule, so-called sustainable revenue generating operations, including the sale of carbon credits. Carbon credits have been debunked and carbon credits have been scrutinized because they don't work. And it's basically to have it so people who virtue signal on the environment can atone for their sins of having a perceived damaging carbon footprint and then say, okay, I have studied my activity doing this, but more and more studies, including from sources that are very sympathetic with carbon offsetting and carbon credits have had to report that the tool doesn't work. The carbon credit market is on the downward trend and people have naturally skepticism of that practice because it really doesn't do anything to enhance the environment or really reduce your impact. As I noted in this blog post, Carbon credits in the offsetting process have both come under increased scrutiny. Last year especially was really bad, involving a report uh, pertaining to the carbon offsetting from South Pole. It sold over 3 million environmentally worthless credits to major companies so that they could declare, these companies in essence, that their products and services are carbon neutral. And then a similar investigation by The Guardian, which really is aggressive in pushing like preservationism and climate alarmism. They found in their report that 94% of rainforest carbon offsets were phantom credits that did little to reduce carbon emissions. And another report, I think from Reuters, found that confidence in so-called voluntary carbon credit markets was very low. There's little confidence left. And so while we're celebrating the stopping of NACs for now, like I said, you have to pay attention to the Office of Management and Budget and their incorporation of ecosystem services in cost-benefit analysis pertaining to government spending and budgetary items. So that's where we have to look next, even though this rule won't likely proceed. But I was really happy to have a hand in this. I was a small 
but I hope pivotal player in messaging on this issue. I worked closely with CFACT and also I used my position at IWF to really draw attention to this. And I want to thank the Congressional Western Caucus for having me speak on this topic and to Margaret Beifeld of American Stewards for Liberty, who really lit this issue up and exposed this and, and was behind the efforts. Like if you don't give Margaret and her group credit, you should, because this is who brought this issue to our wider awareness. And so without Margaret and her group and everyone else who engaged here, we wouldn't have this momentary victory. I want to talk about the Chevron doctrine. We have talked a little bit about this issue here on the podcast. I've written about it at other places as well. But you're thinking, what does this potential decision from the Supreme Court, these two cases that are being heard as of last week, what does this have to do with conservation? This has everything to do with conservation and more. And it reminds me a lot of the West Virginia versus EPA case, that really seminal decision that said that the EPA's authority for regulating greenhouse gases was limited and that the agency can't exceed its bounds with doing such. So basically clamped down on agency regulations and, and said that Congress is the one essentially to regulate, create rules, legislate, and that agency shouldn't be the one creating rules. And so it has similar implications here. Now, there are two cases. There's Loper Bright Enterprises, Inc. versus Raimondo, who is the Commerce Secretary, and Relentless, Inc. versus the Department of Commerce. These plaintiffs, the ones who have petitioned their case to the Supreme Court, this is a little delayed from what I was reading that fall of last year. We would potentially hear these cases, but it's being potentially decided this judicial term, this Supreme Court term. And there could be a final rule handed down by June of this year. I'm going to explain what the Chevron Doctrine is and then this particular case as to why these petitioners, why these plaintiffs have grievances and gripes against the Commerce Department creating these really obtuse rules and standards. The Chevron Doctrine is a little before many of our time. The court decision, the original one, Chevron versus the Natural Resources Defense Council, was decided in 1984. And I'm going to read again from this blog post that I have because I tried to break this down very simply. This is another IWF blog post. The Chevron Doctrine essentially says that courts should defer to a federal agency's interpretation of an ambiguous statute as long as that interpretation is reasonable. Therefore, there's a two-step process in terms of reviewing agency statutes that seeks to determine if a statute in question is ambiguous and if the ambiguous statute is therefore reasonable. And I wrote in this piece that in the 40 years since Chevron was decided, it's invited government agencies to engage in rulemaking that exceeds their authority since these powers are constitutionally prescribed to Congress. The Wall Street Journal had a great editorial on this, and they wrote that the Chevron deference has no constitutional basis. They argue that it undermines the Administrative Procedure Act, and it potentially violates the Constitution's due process clause. One of the plaintiffs, the Loper plaintiffs, a group of New Jersey fishermen, believe that the Commerce Department is imposing unreasonable monitoring fees on them under the Magnuson-Stevens Act of 1976 using this doctrine. And what it does, as this standard is currently being applied, these fishermen have to fork over 20% of their daily earnings. I believe it amounts to about $700. A great kind of cultural example or parallel is found as it relates to the Chevron Doctrine in the film Coda. It came out a couple years ago, won some Academy Awards. It's actually a remake of a French movie, uh, but that doesn't involve federal monitors. But they made this one centered in Gloucester, Massachusetts, of uh, this commercial fishing family. And they showcase how kind of abusive federal monitors are, especially to this deaf and hard of hearing family. 
there. So I won't give away any spoilers, but I thought the Chevron doctrine being displayed there was really great and, and offered some context into that. So watch the movie if you want kind of like a clear example of what that looks like or how this is being applied. I'll read more into the Loper uh, kind of case here. So this two-step process under the Chevron doctrine, why are these plaintiffs challenging it? The Loper plaintiffs argued that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA Fisheries, which is also known as the National Marine Fisheries Service, they can't require federal observers aboard their vessels. The plaintiffs operate in the Atlantic Herring Fishery, which is not required by the Magnuson-Stevens Act to pay observers. They argue, however, that the law only requires observers in three narrow cases, and I've linked to a briefing about what those three narrow cases are. So the Atlantic herring fishery, which is what they partake in, does not require federal monitors, but yet the Commerce Department is still mandating that they have federal observers on board. So what this would do, it would clarify and hopefully clamp down on the Commerce Department making rules that far exceed their bounds. And again, it's going to be like West Virginia versus EPA. I think if the conservative court can come to a consensus or I wouldn't say consensus, but maybe a five, four, six, three decision. And we'll see the reaction by preservationists saying, oh my gosh, this is the end of environmental regulation. This will be open season on fisheries, but it's not. It just means that there has to be temperance with regard to regulation because we have so many regulations in the books. Regulations and taxes don't motivate people to want to be an environmental steward. We see this with the instituting of a carbon tax which has upstream and downstream effects not only on producers who would be penalized, but also consumers who would feel the effects of those carbon taxes. And then you also see this with the continuing battle between the federal government and private stakeholders on the ground. The more you charge people to transition away from fossil fuels to net zero policies, the less they are willing to pay. We've seen this in a Chicago poll that showed that by increasing, you know, fighting climate, $10 increments, you had fewer people willing to pay for those climate taxes, naturally. You see the soon-to-be-released SEC rule to track upstream and downstream emissions under the Scope 3 emissions rule that is yet to be handed down. That's not going to incentivize companies to report their emissions, and it's extremely hard to catalog emissions because of the standards that reporting has demanded on people, and it's very hard to quantify, and people can game the system in terms of proving that they're really great and that they're tracking their emissions Or this rule is going to regulate entities that are not under the purview of the SEC, like farming and ranching businesses, small and medium-sized ranches and farms, and then put more burdens on them to shift from their focus of providing their goods and services to just dedicating their whole time to tracking emissions. Makes no sense. But even as these decisions and limitations on presidential power and agency power are handed down, you still see executive orders, you still see agency rules coming out from this administration. So they won't listen to this, unfortunately, but we do have checks and balances happening. It doesn't seem as noticeable as it should be. And then you have this administration, of course, exceeding their bounds, their particular agencies creating rules where they don't have authority. Nevertheless, if this decision is handed down, I think it would be really good. And I love the fact that the plaintiffs are fishermen. Relatedly to the Chevron Doctrine too, I think this is going to be finalized. We'll touch upon this more, is the Atlantic Vessel Speed Rule. The Gulf of Mexico Speed Rule was withdrawn. And I would like to think that our awareness of that issue and bringing on Captain Dylan Hubbard, who's a phenomenal advocate for recreational boaters and anglers, I think his case and and the efforts of the fishermen down there really helped to stop the rice's whale 
rule from proceeding, but we need some more help on this Atlantic vessel speed rule. And we'll try to draw more attention, especially if that rule is finalized, but we still have a lot of threats there. And, but maybe this decision will prevent the commerce department from creating this vessel speed rule too. And finally, we are taking our attention to Washington state where today at 3 PM Eastern 12 PM Pacific time. And I think by one thirty Pacific time, four thirty Eastern time, the legislature is going to hear a bill, specifically Senate Joint Resolution 8208, to codify and enshrine the right to hunt and fish in their state constitution. Now you're thinking, how does this add up mathematically? Do they have the numbers? Don't preservationists control the state legislature? How would this conceivably pass? How would this realistically become something I don't know in terms of the optics and likelihood of this passing. I want to be optimistic of such a measure. Being able to pass muster, being able to be signed into law. But there are a lot of negative factors at play because I don't think the governor would sign this into law. He's too captured by radical preservationists and climate alarmists to do this. His Fish and Wildlife Department has been captured by anti-hunters And you have these outside groups like Washington Wildlife First and then Wildlife for All who are trying to have the ear of these commissioners and they're putting a lot of money to prevent this type of effort from happening. But I think you never know. Crazier things have happened and maybe sanity will prevail here. But here is what the potential resolution, if it were to pass, if it were to get to the governor's desk, here's what it would do. If it were to be passed by the legislature and then brought before the governor then the secretary of state according to the proposed bill at the next general election shall submit to the qualified voters of the state for their approval and ratification or rejection an amendment to article one of the constitution of the state of washington by adding a new section that reads as follows article one section something there's no specific section from the time humans first occupied this land hunting fishing and foraging have been a necessity and cultural right The rights to forage, hunt, fish, and trap, including the use of traditional methods, are a valued part of the heritage of the state of Washington and shall forever be preserved for the people and managed through the laws, rules, and proclamations that preserve the future of hunting, fishing, and trapping. All the people of this state shall have an inalienable right to forage, hunt, fish, trap, and harvest wildlife and fish subject only to reasonable regulation as prescribed by the Washington State Legislature and Executive Branch. Traditional methods, practices, and procedures of harvest are the preferred means of managing game and fish. Nothing in this section may be construed to modify the provision of common law or statutes relating to trespass, eminent domain, or any other property rights, nor does this section supersede, limit, interpret, or infringe on any established tribal treaty rights. Be it further resolved that the Secretary of State shall cause notice of this constitutional amendment to be published at least four times during the four weeks next preceding the election in every legal newspaper in the state. So a common misconception about right to hunt and fish amendments are that they infringe on property rights. They enable poaching. We've seen this in North Carolina when they passed theirs in 2018. We saw this in Utah in 2020, which became the last state to pass this type of resolution and be adopted by a majority of voters there. We see this battle playing out currently in states like Ohio, which is still kind of deliberating over this. It's in committee right now. It hasn't been brought before the House, full House chamber yet, but it could have some movement. It should because there's a lot of hunters in Ohio. Hunting and fishing play a very important role there, has a very big economic footprint. The next state where I think such a amendment will pass, I think, is Florida because just... 
the dynamics there and how the resolution got near unanimous support across both houses except for one member, but it had both Democrat and Republican support. I've heard from friends on the ground that the governor is probably going to be touting it a bit more now that he's no longer running for president. Maybe he will put his endorsement behind it. But there is momentum in Florida to do this because, you know, with the state growing so big, with just the different threats to hunting they see from states like Washington and Colorado, and these efforts by groups like Washington Wildlife First, Wildlife for All, that want to separate hunters and anglers from these key conservation management decisions because they view us as despoilers of the environment. They say that we're consumptive users killing everything in our path and that the North American model of wildlife conservation is outdated and that we're the horrible stewards, we're the horrible people displacing wildlife and imperiling biodiversity, which is blatantly false. It's it's ridiculous that they even make such an accusation and they're not challenged for it. Like not many people are challenging them with these really debunkable talking points. 23 states have this right to hunt and fish amendment. I don't know if there will be a similar effort federally because people view this as more like a federalism issue. It would be interesting if someone ever proposed like a national standard, but there is movement to galvanize support for this. And several red states do not have this. Missouri does not have this. Iowa does not have this. South Dakota does not have this, which is surprising to me that they have certain majorities. They have super majorities of pro sportsmen people, and yet they haven't done this. So Florida eats their cake. Imagine if Washington state passes this. This would be phenomenal. But those states will then say, okay, wow, if it passed in Washington state, maybe we can do the same effort here. So we will follow this. I have an op-ed in townhall.com in the VIP section on this very issue, but I lay the case for why this is something symbolic, something important, even if you don't live in Washington state, because we have to track and see what's happening in the other states. We all have to combine forces. We have to support each other, making sure that reasonable regulations or reasonable proposals are enacted or that certain stakeholders or malcontents do not change and erode what has worked for almost a century since the 1930s of the state wildlife management system, this disbursement of monies from excise taxes on guns, ammunition, fishing, boating tackle, fuel, etc., keeping and perpetuating that cycle, which has contributed over $27 billion in totality since the 1930s, 1937 to be exact. And we do have to perpetuate hunting and fishing because if we don't, then these monies will dry up. Or they'll find other ways to extract monies or divert from hunting and fishing to backpack taxes, hiking taxes of that sort. So you should care what happens in Washington State, even if you don't live in it. And we will continue to monitor this. I may have some official statements for my job on this, maybe potentially. But I have an article, like I mentioned, and you can go read about it and learn about efforts to enshrine and codify the right to hunt and fish all across the United States. It's a very reasonable position. It's a very reasonable policy. It doesn't do anything, like I said, to encroach on property rights. It doesn't excuse criminal behavior. I don't know where they get this from. Like when you hunt and fish, you have to abide by the law. Nobody says that you'll have to skirt the law if this is to be the thing. That doesn't mean you can encroach on someone's property or you can you know, hunt out of season. No way. I've never seen this happen. And actually in states where I think this amendment is adopted, I can't pinpoint this exactly, but you do kind of see higher participation and higher numbers of people who hunt and fish compared to states that don't have this. But I have to go back and see if that is a correlation I could confidently make or 
claim, but I, I think you do see higher rates of licenses in states that have this. And if not, it's it's an interesting, I don't know, theory to explore a little more. Like, does it contribute to a higher likelihood of people going hunting and fishing? But you do see, I, I feel like in states where they have this, you see the heritage respected, you see more people hunting and fishing. So we will see if Washington state does the unthinkable and pass this. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you enjoyed what you heard today, go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify or wherever podcasts are played. Your feedback will help us reach more people. And I love to know what is on your mind after each episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement because that is our way of updating all of you listeners. And we have just hit a thousand followers on Instagram for the podcast account. Thank you very much. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you want to hear on the show, I'm all ears. I would love to hear your feedback there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.